0: And probably as if more cases, when all cases, when the bulletin is different from what's on the slide, it's whoever sent the bulletin information. Who does that? I'm sure I did do 25, but when it came time to put it on the slide, I said, you know what? I like 26 and 27 too, so. Thank you for being on the fly with me, so. Um, I tried to look back on my calendar and it wasn't much help over the past two years. And one thing that I noticed what was glaring that popped out at me, to, if you could remember back December of 2019. Um, it would probably be the, one of the last months that any of us looking back from here to there, going forward from some years to there, would call life, where there's that word again, what are we we looking for? What have we been looking for for two years now? Two and a half, nearly three. Normal. And in this church, uh, after I was reminded of this, I really don't wanna call December of 2019 on normal. Because I remember December of 2019 and I can remember doing four funerals in three weeks and having one more of a family who didn't want to hold a particular memorial. So five in less than three weeks. And then of course, 2020 comes. And I happened to look at the calendar yesterday. Do you know that worldwide There are nearly 480 million cases of COVID reported and 6.1 million deaths. I noticed that yesterday, 8,500 died worldwide. Yesterday, nearly three years later. In the United States, 79 million cases, 975,000 deaths of what we're up to. And yesterday, 850. And we're still averaging about 800 a day. So I began to look at the last two years also, and in 2021, uh, just as 2020 got by, and then 2021, our first experience with that and COVID. And we say goodbye to Sam. And we say goodbye to Ian. And I look around and I'm, I'm hesitant to do this because I'm afraid that I'm gonna leave somebody out. And if I do, forgive me. Forgive me at home if I leave somebody out. But that is the problem with this, is that in the past three years, it's so much, it's easy to leave somebody out. Marlene's husband and David lost a sister-in-law. And of course, there's Joanne and Herman. And then this year, Ray. You know, I think about a church, I think about organizations, and if any organization in the past two or three years had lost the vital parts of their organization as we have, I don't think that they could go on. I don't think that they could exist. But here we are today. Hopefully the love of Christ in our heart and a faith in something else besides what's been given us. And what really made me want to talk about this today, to do this today, Albert, I I left out Joan, I'm sorry, Joan and Kay. See, now that I'm seeing faces, I'm sorry that I left the list out first time. And then it culminated last week with my brother-in-law, Nellie's brother. And in July, I said bye to my baby brother. My baby brother, he's not supposed to go before me, before his 50th birthday. So death has woven its way into our story, hasn't it? Into the human story, into our church. It's woven its way in. In a way, it's become part of our DNA. Whether we like it or not, whether we admit it or not, it has been. And so if you give me just a, I I, I guess, Take just a little bit of a hiatus from the book of Hebrews. I've, I've been truly, truly jazzed, if you will. I've been blessed going through the book of Hebrews. And uh, I told, like I said before I left, I told you it'd be fun, didn't I? Because uh, any time that you get to see Jesus for who he really is, uh, if you're not having fun when you get to see Jesus who he really is, then uh, I don't, I, I'm not sure what to, what to do for you. You need to find another club, I guess. But I I think that this has something to do with Hebrews. I'm not stepping completely away, and and yet it isn't really Hebrews five, which we'll get to next week. Just to listen to another story and to talk about death. And as with all things, being a believer in Christ and having faith in Jesus and wanting to grasp more of His grace and more of His love, because He has paid it all, and understanding that it it is all to Him we owe, that uh, maybe Jesus redefines death for us also. First and second death, first or second death. And so, I, I, if you, if you could listen to a story and it. It begins this way, it says, the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man, humanity became a living being. I always say that, that almost everything we need to know we can learn from Genesis and, and one thing is that second account of creation where everything is done in in, in the six days, everything is done from God sitting on his throne and speaking it into existence. But when it came time for his children, when it came time for you and me, uh, that distance wasn't gonna cut it with him. He gets off his throne, he gets down on his hands and knees. He personally gets involved, forms us out of the dust of the ground, and then holds us up and literally breathes his life into ours, the breath of life. And we then became living souls. That beautiful Hebrew word, nefesh, a soul. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east where he put the man who he had formed. And listen to the narrative, listen to the story. Out of the ground the Lord made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight, good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything is is trees. Everything is growing. The majesty of a tree, the, the beauty of a tree, the silence of a tree. All of life is given to us in trees. A river flows out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divides and becomes four branches. The name of the first is Pishon, as the one that flows around the whole land of Havilah. There is gold, and the gold of the land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It's the one that flows around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third is Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. The fourth is the Euphrates, the Lord Put man in the middle of the garden to till it and accept it. The language, listen to the language. It's all about life and the best things of life. Water and trees and minerals and it all, not one mention of anything that can touch it. Anything that can destroy it. And the Lord commanded the man you may eat freely out of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. The choice has always been between life and what? It was given to our father. It was given to humanity. The choice is between life and death. Don't eat. It's there. Did he say that you can't eat? Did he build a wall around it? Did he electrify a fence around it? No, because we were created in his image to have free will to choose whether or not we will love and worship this God, to look at all life that he's given us and decide for ourselves whether or not he is worthy of our worship, worthy of our love. As for me in my house, my answer is yes. How about you today? But it's always been between life and death. This was the choice. And of course, what did we do? We traded that away. We traded life for what? For death. Death has become our locomotive force. If you think about it, especially in the last two and a half years. And I I looked at my notes and I heard Grady's prayer and talk about the Ukraine. I didn't even have the Ukraine in my notes. Didn't even have pending World War III in my notes. If I'd have remembered that, I don't think I would have got out of bed this morning. But here we are, aren't we? There's not many of us here that remember what it was like to be on the brink of world war. But here we are today. In the midst of the two years that we just experienced. Death has become our DNA. It's our locomotive force. Survival of the fittest. We come into this world wired for it, literally wired for it. Human babies are wired to survive. They have to survive. They need to be protected. It's a hostile environment in which we now birth our children into. This is what was given to us. So if you talk about life, For the past six to 10,000 years, you have to talk about what? You have to talk about death. Many, many bad things in my life I've been able to ignore until they went away. (laughs) I smile at my wife when I say that. But really, they never went away. And this is one thing that will not go away no matter how much we ignore it. So I thought about death. I think about death today. In Hebrew thought, Hebrew thought is very pragmatic. Sometimes in Hebrew thought, it's best to tell you what something isn't in order to tell you what it is. So I'll tell you what death is by telling you what it isn't. You know what it isn't? It's not life. Death simply is not what? It isn't life. And I'll go one step further to say that if death is the DNA in which we now live, I will say that this life, this life that we're living now, it isn't really life either, is it? Because probably for most of us, this life will end in something. What will it end in? It will end in death. And I'm not not saying that there is no resurrection. I'm not saying that there is no hope. But what I'm saying is, is that you can't talk about the resurrection without talking about death. If there wasn't death, there would have been no need for a resurrection. Amen? So what is death? I begin by saying that death simply isn't life. And this life, some people have said, you know, we're not really living, what are we doing? We're actually dying, aren't we? Right? From the day that we were born, we begin to age, well I did. I don't know about you. I look at some of you and I say, "Hey, no, nah, man, that looks pretty good." So when did life change? When did it begin? When did it become death? Of course, chapter 3. The serpent was more crafty than any other animal that the Lord made that the Lord had made. He said to the woman, "Did God say you shall not eat?" From the tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it, or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, surely you will not, what? You will not die, not for that. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, you will be like God, knowing good and what? What? And evil so of course we know the choice that it made and by the way it changed everything you go from chapter 2 to chapter 3 it changes everything we look at our life now and it sounds nothing like what I just read from chapter 2 does it not just one river four rivers you with me not just one precious mineral three of them not just one tree a bunch of trees the life of abundance. Today we live by the life of scarcity, all because we introduced what? Death. I'm trying to get you to say it more often. The more more times you say death and put it there in front of us, maybe we could begin to look at it the way that Jesus would have us look at it. But we know the choice that they made the guilt, the shame, the fear, the terror. Terror is an apt word for what death introduced into God's creation, isn't it? Terror or, horror or. It all changed, except one thing. One thing hadn't changed but the Lord called to the man. In the midst of the terror and the horror, there's a voice, and the voice says what? Where are you? I've always loved that Moses waits to tell you after the fall that God showed up every day. He waits until after the fall to tell you. He waits until the horror and the terror of the fall settles in on the first creatures and we go with them into the darkness, at least what they think is safety, trying to cover their nakedness up and their shame and their terror and their horror. I always like that Moses waits until we begin to experience that. Then he reveals to us, you know what? God showed up walking in the cool of the evening of the day. Everything changes except God shows up unchanged. But the Lord said to the man, where are you? Let me let me let me say as a father as a human father if the fall was supposed to change God's mind about them about the children why does he show up the day after why does he show up after the fall offering them the same relationship that they had the day before where are you i'm walking i'm missing you where are you guess what hadn't changed the love of the father The love of the Creator. They're terrified. They're horrified. But they have no reason to be, do they? I'm here. Where are you? I miss you. My walk is not complete today. The trees are here. The coolness is here. Where are you? The answer comes back, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. God says, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? I love those words. Who told you you were naked? Who are you listening to? The beautiful thing about before the fall is that there was no shame. They were completely naked and there was no reason to feel shame. Once it's mentioned, once the fall happens, once they listen to Satan's voice, that God is keeping things from you, that there is something uh, that God has an ulterior motive to all this. This is why he doesn't want you to eat from the tree. That's the voice that they listen to. God does not really love you the way that he says. He's only going to love you if you do what he says. Is that love? That isn't love. Who told you you were naked? Who are you listening to? Of course, the man answers what? It was a woman whom you gave me to be with me. In fact, the man doesn't answer it was the woman. The man says, it was the woman. Whoa, wait a minute, you gave me to her, it was you. It was you. Now please go away and leave me alone. I've got terror and horror to deal with. Who told you? Who are you listening to? See if you don't believe that sin is a nature then you don't grasp the gravity of those words. If you think that sin is just a bad choice, you need to grasp the gravity of those words right there. It changed humanity at his core. It changed Adam completely at his core. Adam is now in it for who? He's now in it for him. He is now looking out for number one. He is now living survival of the fittest. He's now living the new DNA of this world. There's a hostile world, and i got to protect myself against it. He's already warming up, isn't he? I'll use my number one weapon. I'm going to blame someone else. So I'll blame Eve. I'll blame God. Eve will blame the serpent. And God's just standing there going, where are you? Who are you listening to? You can blame me all you want. Just come out of the bush. Let's talk. Let's walk. So he gets them together, and I think he maybe gets them to come out just a little bit, but um, he's gonna tell them how it is. He's gonna tell them how the DNA has changed. This is what it's going to be like now. But before he does, he does something first. He says to the woman, "What what is it you've done? What is it you've done? And he, she said it was the serpent. What is it you've done? Where are you? What is it you've done? I'm going to talk about that a little later, but the two questions that we should be asked, the two ways in which we now deal with the mechanism of death today, remember those questions. Remember those questions in the voice of the Father. Where are you? What is it you've done? What is it you've done? But before he begins to tell him everything that's happened, he turns to the serpent. And he says, because you have what? Because you've done this. Because you have done this. And this goes all the way back to, to Revelation 12, doesn't it, just before Revelation 13. It goes all the way back to 11 and 12, the war in heaven, right? This all begins back then. He says, what is it you have done? He knows very well what Satan has done. He knows very well, doesn't he? This is a rhetorical question. He wants the children to hear this. What is it you have done? Because you've done this, cursed are you among all animals and all wild creatures. Upon your belly you shall go, the dust you shall eat, how many days? All the days of your life. He turns first to the one responsible, the one who sowed the seeds about father, the father not being a loving God. The accuser. His name simply means accuser. Hasatan is not a proper name in Hebrew. It's a name meaning accuser. He accuses God of not being of love. He accuses the children out of acting out of fear and selfishness. He gave them the selfishness to act out. This is his DNA. And unfortunately, unfortunately, Satan becomes the perfect God for this realm, doesn't he? Because this is the way that he operates. The opposite of love. The opposite of lovingly created. Evolution is random. Evolution is cruel. Evolution requires death before life, right? It's exactly the way Satan would create if he could create. Guess what he says though? You may look like you're ruling now and you may rule for a very long time, but I will put enmity between you and who? And the woman. Hatred, enmity, a focused hatred. This is not a I hate broccoli hatred. I love broccoli, I hate Brussels sprouts hatred. This is a focused hatred. It's a motivational hatred. It's a hate that only one could have for another. It's a grudge. I will put hatred, enmity between you and the woman. One day, one day there'll be some hatred between these two. These two right now, they worship you. These two right now, they took what I gave them and they gave it to you. But one day, one day, Between your offspring and hers. Offspring, seed, a single seed. I don't like the term offspring because that's plural. In Hebrew, it says between your seed, Eve, one. Single is what he says, single. And between your seed, Satan, children, plural. He's telling Eve, one day there'll be one baby. There'll be one child. There'll be one son of man. Who's going to put this right? He'll strike your head. You'll strike his heel. You'll have limited victory over him. You'll have some sort of victory over him. But eventually, he will conquer. And by the way, he conquers in the act of Satan thinking that he's conquered. With me? It is finished. Finished. Amen? Mommy better come real quick. Before I tell you what it's going to be like, God says, I'm going to tell you I've already come up with a plan. I'm going to tell you that it's already in motion. This will be made right, you and me. We will be right again, is what he's telling the children. Amen? One day we will be right again. And he will make it right. One day that baby will make it right. One day that one human being, that one son of man will be made right. We didn't, we didn't go too far from Hebrews right there. Isn't that what Hebrews is trying to teach us? Therefore we have such a high priest, such a perfect son of man, amen? So we're not too far from Hebrews today. A human that will hate what should be hated and love what should be loved because the children are opposite now. The children have turned it on its head. And God is gently telling them, listen, it won't be easy. It isn't gonna be heaven anymore on earth. It's now going to be what? It's now gonna be hell. It's now going to be about death, not life. To the woman, he said, I'll greatly increase your pangs in childbearing. Why does he bring up childbearing now? Because it's where humans begin. It's where we all begin. What is he saying about pain? The pain begins with our mothers giving birth, and how long does it continue? As long as we're walking the planet. Right, Grady? Is that what you were saying today? Allergies. They're a what? They're a pain. Pain. yet you shall, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. This is a consequence, not a mandate. This is not what God wants. He doesn't want any humans to rule over any other humans, especially between man and woman, especially in this particular relationship. But what happens is if you take a person who has somewhat of a superior physical advantage, in other words, that they might be stronger, give them a sinful nature, Give them the attitude that they're now in it for me. How long do you think it's going to be before man begins to use force to get what he wants? It's only a matter of time. And it's only a matter of time till the whole earth is filled with it. It took 10 generations to get to chapter six. 10 generations and the whole earth is now filled with what? Violence, where'd that come from? It came from one human exercising physical strength and superiority of another one. It takes less than 10 generations for it to infect the entire population. And by the way, after God pronounces this, he actually pronounces, you know what? Now that I see it, I'm sorry that it happened. You know, we we talk about God knowing the beginning from the end. The beautiful thing, though, is that God doesn't sit on his throne and just say, yeah, there, there you go, I told you so. After this, he doesn't say, I told you so. He says, I'm sorry, I'm sorry that I created it, I'm sorry that it made it happen. In other words, now that it's happening, now that I see what it's causing, because those are my kids, he can't take it. The beautiful thing is God inserts him into our history, amen? He experiences our history with us. He doesn't experience it from afar, knowing it ahead of time. I think I pointed out before that it said that we all, we all look after the flood, you know, because the flood is what, is, is what kind of puts this on hold, at least puts it on hold long enough so that we won't exterminate each other before that baby can come along. If he doesn't do anything in chapter six, Humanity won't have enough time to have the baby come along, amen? He didn't want to destroy the earth with a flood. We gave him no choice. Actually, got to be careful with that. God always has a choice, amen? But you know what I'm saying. The whole world, the whole earth was filled with violence. That word violence there, Hebrew word, you may recognize it, Hamas, Corrupt, evil at its core, violence, Hamas, and it includes all types of violence, every type of violence, which includes, unfortunately, rape as well as murder, and assault, and war, and all of those things. It's an all-encompassing term, if you will. Less than 10 generations. All I have to do is count 10 begats from Genesis 3 to Genesis 6 and the entire race is infested with it. Even marriage has a taken vibe to it, you know? When you read in the the Hebrew scriptures, when you read about even what we would consider romantic relationships and marriages, it's always Abraham took her for a wife. Moses takes her for a wife. Noah's son's Take their wives even even that has this this kind of vibe to it Adam himself because you've listened to the voice of your wife eaten from the tree about which I commanded you saying you shall not eat from it cursed is the ground now because of you in toil you will eat of it all the days of your life you've ever noticed that now whatever happens as long as Adam worked for it it's going to be okay In other words, he can be as greedy as he wants to be, but as long as man works for it, as long as he's seen to work hard for it, he can be as greedy as he wants to be. His greed will now be justified. Which plays in perfectly, perfectly, with the new DNA of the the planet, or the new DNA of the creation, right? Survival of the what? Survival of the fittest. We only get stronger as we weed out the weaklings. Sure, I could do good things with all that I work for, right, I could give, but I gotta make mine first, right? We'll justify it any way we want now. And the man called his wife what? Because she is the mother of how many living? Of all living. This is us now. We are our parents' children. This is now who we are. Considering that our fallenness, considering now that all our fallenness has, has caused, considering our nature and what it's capable of, consider all of that, what is the only outcome that can come from this? Begins with a D. Death. This isn't gonna stop until the last one standing. And considering that he's a supernatural being, Satan would be the last one standing, which is what he wants. So, let me ask you this then. What would be the second best news humanity could look for in this particular situation. What would be the good news? The second best news. What would be the solution though? Just the second best, not the best. We know what the best is. We know the gospel is good news, right? But as far as the bad news is concerned, what would be the second best option? Death. Right? Put an end to this. Because we see death the way it's supposed to be. We see death through the eyes of what it was meant to be. The actual choice, the actual loving choice between a loving father and his creatures. Life or what? Or death. Why is death the second best option? Because if nothing else, it's rest from this. It's what? It's rest. the most peaceful nap you'll ever take. Amen? It's rest. Not death revised, but death. It's what the Bible teaches us. Death is what? Death is death. Remember how we were created. I'm gonna get... I'm going to get uh, parochial now, okay? Fundamental belief. Doctrinal now. I'm going to get doctrinal. How were we created? Formed by the dust of the ground and breathed into what? The breath of life. Whose breath? His. We don't have spirit in and of ourselves, do we? It's not our spirit that will return when when our body returns to the earth, right? It's whose? It's God's. So if we quit breathing his spirit and all we're left for is this shell that will return to the earth, then we're what? We're dead. Death is the absence of one or the other, either the the absence of the body or the absence of his Holy Spirit. We don't use words like that though. Have you ever noticed that? And, and, and I'm gonna to get to this in a minute, it's because mankind really doesn't wanna believe in death. As a matter of fact, most believers in Christ don't believe in death. Not death for what it really is, death. How many here are still hesitant after somebody passes to say that they died? It isn't polite, is it? At a memorial or a funeral, we say passed away, passed on, right? Slipped into, right? But actually, they're what? They're dead. <laughs> dead. The most peaceful sleep they will ever experience. What's absent in death? Life. And what have we substituted our life that we were given for? Death. Death. So all the turmoil, all the toil, everything that gets us up to this point, everything that we talked about, my, my entire first page of notes there, plague, war, disease, aging. We are absent of all of that, right? we get to what? We get to rest. It's rest. And the best news about it for a certain group of people is that it isn't forever. The Lord said, behold, the man became like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now he might stretch out his hand and also take from the tree of life and live how long? Forever. It's a, it's a metaphor. They took away, God takes away the tree of life because he doesn't want this going on. It, by the way, it can't go on. It can't sustain itself. Eventually, it is going to give way to the last one standing, right? It isn't going to last. So it's a metaphor that the tree is taken away. This will not last forever. When it comes down to this, when you come to asking the big questions about death, the Adventist understanding of death, fundamental belief number, I forget what it is, but fundamental belief number whatever it is, fundamental is about what? Death. For a God that's not, not just loving, but is actual love itself, death is the most merciful, loving thing he can do for those who choose it because they're finally at what? They're finally at rest. They're finally at peace. Death is the only merciful thing that he can do, is to put an end to this poor excuse for life that we chose and at least give everybody a peace, give everybody a nap. It's either life as he created it, or it will be death as designed. Life was designed to be an eternal entity between God and man. And it's only capable, it is only capable if those are living, are living in love. Not just loving, but being love itself, just like their creator. If selfishness exists on any level, it will threaten life. Death, real death, where one really dies, is the only state that still reflects the love and the mercy of God. Are you with me? Because imagine what we've done with that most fundamental belief. And when I say we, I'm not technically talking about us, but look what most Christianity has done with that most fundamental belief. We've come up with all kinds of things to make an excuse that we don't really die, right? Most people don't believe it. You go to where when you die? You either go to heaven or you go to hell. In other words, they keep on living, right? Yeah, but then we pat ourselves on the back and say, well, we really don't believe that, but what have we done with it? Have we been merciful with it? Or have we become selfish with it? Have we used our doctrine about knowing what death is and knowing what life is in order to be better than those who don't happen to believe that? In other words, we begin to use the doctrine of unselfish, merciful love about death and we turn it selfish to make us better than somebody else. I may not be perfect, but at least I'm not like one of those evangelicals who believes in X. You with me? I'm just checking in with you. And how do we know? How do we know? Because we know the character of God if we believe in that son of man that Grady read us about that was given all judgment, given all uh, eternity, given all of that in order to be given to you and me, in John chapter five, if we believe that, then we can't believe what other people believe about heaven or hell, you with me? Heaven can't be heaven if we believe in that all merciful God, heaven can't be heaven I cannot believe that it would be heaven, no more tears, no more more sorrow for my mother watching my father try to live without his wife of 46 years from day to day and the struggle that he goes through. That can't be heaven. That may be somebody else's idea of heaven, right? And hell, everlasting burning torment fire and brimstone forever and ever? So the greatest biblical argument that you can come up with is that eternal punishment means that we have to be alive to endure it. It violates the very fundamental thing we know about Christ. Grady, when you read to us today, what is the one fundamental thing that we know about Christ? He who has the Son has life. There is life only in Christ. If I'm dead, I can't be alive to endure everlasting torment. We turn him into somebody vengeful, but I look at the son and I say, no, the father is exactly like the son. The son is exactly like the father, so it can't be revenge So I can come to a conclusion. If it isn't Christ-like, then it isn't Christ. And to me, the only thing that cuts this, the only thing that cuts through this is death. The most merciful thing that he could do for everybody, regardless of our choice, regardless of, of who we are, and regardless of what's going to happen after this nap is over, Death is still the most loving, merciful thing that he could do. He who has the Son has what? He who does not have the Son of God does not have what? Does not have life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of Man and those who hear will what? We'll live. If you've heard the voice of the son of man, then yes, your nap won't be forever. Praise God. Because when you hear his voice again, you will rise and you will what? And you will live. But everybody else, everybody else who may not have chosen that, they still get the mercy of death. They're still free of everything even if they chose not to worship, even if they chose to be one of God's enemies, even if they choose death and choose not to worship him, they get a Sabbath rest. Free from everything. Free from judgment. Free from the church judging them for being God's enemy. Free from from judgment and condemnation from anywhere else. Even they, even they, Get a Sabbath rest. See, because here we all are, still alive, barely alive, on a planet of death. And what do we do? We live. We live. Adam and Eve did nothing after the fall, fall but give God justifications and distractions and misdirections. And what did God do? He moved on. He sacrificed a lamb. He clothed them in it, in this, in this lamb's clothes, if you will. He does what needs to be done. He's gonna do it with their cooperation where they're out. They're hemming and hawing and they're blaming and they're stiffening their necks. And he's quietly gone over and picked out a lamb and does what needs to be done. And now they cry and they yell and they're confused. What's that? It's 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 death. What is that? Wait, wait. Well, wait a minute. I was cold a minute ago. Now I'm warm. So here we are, barely living. But here we are. And God is going to do what needs to be done. We backed him into a corner. But he's still going to show us what love is all about. He says, it won't go on forever. Don't worry, it won't go on forever. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. The garden will be here waiting for you. If you don't believe me, read Revelation 21. The garden will be waiting for you. But I can't can't have you in it and have you last forever now as you are. So I'm sorry, I really am sorry. The garden will be waiting for you. I won't be waiting for you because I'm gonna walk with you. You're not gonna want me to. I'm going to weave my way into your life any way that you can. You give me a crack, I'm going to be in there. You're not going to want me there, but I will. And over the next 4,000 years or so, I'll try to enter your lives and be with you. And then one day, one day, you will know me. Hebrews 2.17. Therefore, he had to become like his brothers and sisters, In how many respects? In every respect. That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make a sacrifice of atonement for the sins of the people. So then, therefore, there is now a what? A Sabbath rest remaining for the people of God. One day you will know me. One day we will walk and talk. One day when that baby becomes a faithful, merciful high priest, he will give everybody rest. Did you hear me? Everybody. At least they'll have that. Philip Yancey wrote once, he said that Norwegian theologian Oli Hollisby settled on the single word helplessness as the best summary of the heart attitude that God accepts as prayer. Whether it takes the form of words or not does not mean anything to God, only to ourselves. Only he who is helpless can truly pray. See, we're living in this world right now and we that helpless should be a good way to put it, shouldn't it? We're barely alive. This planet's barely alive. Death is our locomotive DNA. We should feel what? Helpless. What a stumbling block. Almost from birth, we aspire to self-reliance. Adults celebrate it as a triumph whenever children learn to do something on their own. Go to the bathroom, get dressed, brush teeth, tie shoelaces, ride a bike, walk to school. When the child stubbornly insists, I'll do it myself. The parent takes secret pride in that independent spirit even when the child proceeds to make a mess of the task. As adults, we like to pay our own way, live in our own houses, make our own decisions, rely on no outside help. We look down upon those who live off welfare or charity. Faced with the unexpected challenge, we seek out self-help books. All the while, we are systematically sealing off the heart attitude most desirable to God, most descriptive of our state in the universe. Apart from me, you can do nothing. you and I are in a secret conspiracy to do, with, do away with that, aren't we? No, we gotta be able to do something. The truth is, of course, we are not self-reliant first grade student i hated having the teacher stand over me to correct my reading miscues i wanted to do it myself but had the teacher not assumed her proper role i may never have learned to read books much less write them as an adult i rely on public utilities to bring me electricity and fuel vehicle manufacturers to provide me transportation ranchers and farmers to feed me pastors and mentors to nourish me spiritually i live in a web of dependence At the center of which is God, whom holds all things together." Prayer forces me to catch sight of this, my true state. In Henri Nguyen's words, to pray is to walk full in light of God, to say simply without holding back, I am human, you are God. At that moment, a conversion occurs, the restoration of the true relationship. A human being is not someone who once in a while makes a mistake, and God is not someone who now and then forgives. No, human beings are sinners, and God is love, Most parents feel a pang when the child outgrows dependence, even while knowing the truth, that growth to be healthy and normal. With God, the rules change. I never outgrow dependence, and to the extent I think I do, I delude myself. Asking for help lies at the root of prayer. The Lord's prayer itself consists of a string of such requests. Prayer is a declaration of dependence upon God. A character in one of Henry Adams' novels cries out in frustration, why must the church always appeal to my weakness and never to my strength? I can think of several reasons. In a world that glorifies success, an admission of weakness disarms the pride at the same time that it prepares us to receive grace. Meanwhile, the very weakness that drives us to pray becomes an invitation for God to respond with compassion and power. The Lord upholds all those who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. In the presence of the great physician, my most appropriate contribution may be my wounds. Here we are. Here we are. The beautiful doctrine, if you will, of death. And what have we done with it? Do we extend the mercy and the compassion that it actually holds? I look at death completely different now. At the very least, at the very least, everybody, as we should have looked at everybody before, how many are sinners? We are all sinners. We all know that. We all realize that. But we we don't live that way, do we? We take sinners and we put them on different levels and different planes and we'll, we'll uh, allow some sins to, to be and we'll allow not some sins to be, and we do that, we play that game, we play that game, although we assent to saying all, all, all are sinners. No, we don't, do we? So God then steps in and says, okay, church, struggle with that, live, barely live, but keep coming back to me, let's keep walking and prepare yourself for your mind to be changed. Prepare yourself for, to be able to take off some sinners off pedestals and begin to break them down and begin to put us all on one level. Because when it all comes down to it, all being children, all being created, there are only two things that we have in common. Every one of us are living in this locomotive planet of death and we're all headed for the same place that even if my nap is temporary in death, even if it's just temporary, it's still the same result that somebody who gets and and doesn't believe, whose nap won't be temporary. His mercy extends to everybody, even those that will choose death over life. He lays them in, he tucks them in, and he gives them peace for however long they asked for it. And for those of us who believe, we'll be resurrected one day. And we will know peace in life. We won't have to be satisfied with peace in death anymore. And the one thing that we won't have to worry about is that whoever didn't believe isn't being tortured off somewhere. Amen? They'll be what? They'll be asleep death did you ever see the mercy in death I've had to these last years my family I hope they know it from me too I hope they know it from all of us this is who we are thank you Jesus